today we set it up well that this story is right on the heels of the opposite of this story, which is about a man named uh, Barnabas in his generosity. Now, the question that we need to ask is, is this an overreaction? Okay, <laughs> have you or I ever lied? Like, please, you know, okay, we've all lied. And then uh, this lie says, you haven't just lied toward me, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and, uh, and you'll pay the ultimate price for it. So I've struggled with this passage over the years. It just, it just felt like an overreaction. It wasn't murder or rape or some other horrendous crime. It was somebody lying. And, uh, and this is the result of a lie. So to understand the significance of what went on, let's look at, uh, at um, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 33. Again, Debbie already referenced it a bit, but it says this, With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerful at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. So we see going into this passage, descriptions of power. The first is the power of, uh, of preaching, the power of miracles. And then it goes right into uh, this power to give. Now, I don't know about you, but that's already a little bit surprising, isn't it? You, you have, you know, the miracles of, of, of people rising from the dead and healed from diseases and, and demons cast out. And then you have this other kind of power that's still described as the grace of God or the empowering of God. And it's the ability to have wealth and to give it away. So what we see as the backdrop is that God gives us the power to love. They're all expressions of his grace, his empowering presence. There's a, a great book that I read a, a, a while ago um, by Andy Crouch called Playing God. It's a great uh, book on leadership. And this is what he says. I like this. Love without power is frustrated love. That, uh, that God doesn't want to just give us his loving heart. He wants to give us the ability to express that in ways that affect change in the people around us, the people that we love. So what is power? Well, quite simply, power is ability. If somebody is powerful, that means they have an ability to do something, whether physically or mentally. Um, and in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, it describes this in terms of money. It says that God gives us the ability, and in the New American Standard Bible, it says the power to produce wealth. So the ability or the power to produce wealth. Uh, what this means is that any money in your pocket or mine has been a blessing from God. He gave us the ability to be able to make that money. It's his. It wasn't because we were particularly ingenious or, you know, I, you know I'll, I'll listen to um, uh, stories of really wealthy people. And often the, the story is shaped according to their ingenuity or cleverness or intelligence or hard work. Um, yeah, that could be true. But at the end of the day, God was gracious. And he gave somebody the ability to make money. 
So the example that's given in this passage is Barnabas. He uses his God-given power of money to bless others. That's the good example. And that's what we were left with last week. Uh, so what then, given this context, what is the crime of Ananias and Sapphira? It's the misuse of power. It's not just a lie. It's the misuse of power. God gave you a power, this power called wealth, and you misused it. The way that you misused it was for selfish purposes. It wasn't to bless and love others. It was to build your own image and to look impressive in front of others. You've taken the very goodness and kindness and generosity of God, and you've used it for your own personal gain and advancement so that you'd look great in front of the church. A gift that was given by God in order to bless and serve others, you've twisted that around and used it for your own self-serving agenda. It's especially challenging because it was deceptive. It says in the middle of this passage, look, if you make some money and you, and it, well, if you buy, if you uh, sell some land, you know, fine. Like there's no crime with selling land and keeping that for yourself. But you deceived the people around you thinking that you were being generous and you weren't. You were keeping things for yourself. It's one thing to be honest about, uh, about how we spend our money. It's another thing to be deceptive about it, trying to put on an air that um, isn't really who we are. And here's the issue. The misuse of power destroys the church, for mistrust destroys love. The great crime is that what came into that early church was deception. People posturing to be leaders who were there for the benefit of others, giving out of the generosity of their heart, and it was deceptive. And if the church was to tolerate that kind of deception and selfishness, it would sow a seed of mistrust of the community. Who can we trust? And if we can't trust anybody, then love and unity cannot thrive. And so this came to the very heart of the church. If the church uh, tolerates deception, uh, it undermines the unity and love that is to be experienced in the church. And the, and the way that this is described is how a Satan fills your heart. Satan takes the goodness of God and twists it for self-serving purposes. And that's already bad. But then when you set yourself up as a leader in the church, there for the benefit of others, and it's pure deception, how can a community survive on that kind of foundation? This needs to be dealt with swiftly and clearly. So uh, uh, it's, it's sobering to consider the fragility of trust in a church community or in a family, I would say even in a business. I've been a vocational pastor for over 30 years, and it feels to me, maybe this is just a lack of faith, but it's how I feel, that the church could implode in, in any minute. It, it doesn't feel like this, you know, strong momentum of, of things that will, you know, endure forever. 
And there's lots of reasons why it could implode. The primary reason why is if there's leaders who are deceptive and, uh, and when they are, when they set themselves up as being one kind of person, but they're really another, that seed of mistrust is almost guaranteed to destroy a church community. It's a big deal. <clears throat> and I don't think it's an overreaction. So how does God purify our use of power? And just to be clear, uh, we all have it. We all have some kind of power or ability that God has given us in order to bless others, whether it's financial, whether it's particular talents or gifts, uh, with our time, whatever it would be. We talk about in our church, time, treasures, and talents. God has given these things to bless. So how do we purify those things? How do we purify our time, our ability, our finances? There's two things that we're going to be looking at this evening. The first is accountability. God purifies our use of power when we are accountable to a higher authority. And this authority is the fear of the Lord. In verse 11, it says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It is, uh, it is uh, critical that we understand that we're all under authority. There's nobody above. There's nobody who's, who's free to do whatever they want. And the truth is that God is our judge. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. It says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a, uh, there is a, uh, a belief that, that comes and goes in the church, and now it's, it's more coming than going. It's quite popular. And it's this idea that Jesus, you, we, we call ourselves a Christian, and Jesus pays for our sins, and so we're all good. It doesn't really matter what we do. It's just all going to be fine. And it's this hyper view of grace that says that our behavior no longer really matters in any kind of eternal way, that, um, that we're all going to be forgiven, and God as our judge is only reserved for maybe people who don't know Jesus, and there's some school of thoughts that say even Jesus covers them. So the idea of justice and the idea of God being a judge is just an Old Testament, old-fashioned view of things. We live in the age of grace, and so you don't have to worry anymore about being judged. Unfortunately, 2 Corinthians 5 is in the Bible, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I think that we can see judgment as offensive. How dare you judge me? Who are you to tell me what right and wrong is? I'm trying my best. Difficult things happen to me. I should be able to have the freedom to judge what I do in my body, and nobody has the right to cast any um, suspicion or condemnation or contradiction of that. And so I think that what can uh, characterize us is kind of a, I don't know of another word, but kind of a cavalier 
approach to our Christianity. I'm all forgiven, uh, and how I live my life is mostly about how I live my life. It doesn't really affect anybody, and, uh, and God is not going to be my judge. God is just my Savior. I think of, uh, as a pastor, I think of James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. In the past number of years, we think of uh, Ravi Zacharias or Bill Hybels or Mark Driscoll, who are kind of superstar teachers in the church. Whether you've heard of them or not, they're quite famous. All of them um, went into disrepute, some after they passed away. God's going to judge us. He's going to judge us for what we say and for how we live. And what's particularly uh, uh, concerning to God is if we live in deception, deceiving others, which is the betrayal of trust, which undermines love at its core. So the first point is that the way that God will purify our, the power that we have, and we all have power, is by reminding us that we're accountable for how we use that power. Second point is that power is purified by sharing it. It says the way that the crime was, was phrased, you kept for yourself in verse 3. And in verse 2, it says, you kept back the, 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 you kept back some of the money for yourself. The word uh, is translated elsewhere in the Bible as stealing. You stole. You said you were given. You were giving a certain amount. You didn't. It's the equivalent of theft. If we spend our time, talents, and treasures only on ourselves, we're described as thieves. There's the first, um, kind of after the, the fall of humanity, the first crime is, is uh, Cain and Abel. And um, uh, murder is the first sin recorded. And what, is, uh, what does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? We have this idea that in our individualistic world that we can kind of travel through life and not be accountable. And the Bible is just, uh, the Bible doesn't teach that. It says that we actually have responsibility to one another. Now, that's just a radical thought. Have you, have you thought that if you, if you don't tithe, if you're not generous to your neighbor, uh, you're not living up to the responsibility that God has given you for how you spend your money, and that's described as theft. You made the money, but it's not to be only yours to use. You're responsible to bless others. You've been given the gift of whatever resources you have, and uh, for, if you were to keep it all for yourself, it's described as a crime. So the way then that we are liberated from this crime, from stealing from what is rightly others, rightly God's, rightly others, not as if uh, somebody can come up to you and say, hey, you owe being generous to me. That's not what this is saying. Is by giving it away. Now here's what's great about giving away um, whether it's our, our money or our time or our talents, 
that generosity multiplies power. This may sound kind of weird, but if you want to have power, the best thing that you can do is give it away because it always increases. Those of you who are in business, if you keep all the power to yourself, your business will stay small. But if you actually empower others to take responsibility, your business grows. Power, when it's given away, multiplies. It becomes more and more and more. The only way that you can kill power is by keeping it for yourself. But power actually grows in your life and the lives of those around you as we give it away. I think about even being a D group leader in our church. What's the best way that you can grow in influence and power in this church is by giving it away, by raising up other leaders. And now your influence stretches even beyond your reach. The power, quote unquote, that you have goes even beyond what you directly do. And it's now to be a blessing to others. I think about teaching. If you consider yourself a teacher, how do, you, how do you multiply your gift? You teach others. And now they have that knowledge. And now they can go and bless others with that knowledge. Whatever it is, uh, power always uh, multiplies when we're generous. It's how we get free, and it's how we enable our power to be a blessing to others. You know, there's a... There's a saying, I'm sure that you've heard, that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's kind of treated as a definitive statement, and therefore none of us should ever seek power. I really think that we should all seek power. I really do. Otherwise, our love will be frustrated. And so I think power is a wonderful thing. What uh, Andy Crouch goes on to say in his book, Playing God, he says, absolute power requires absolute love. And so God doesn't say, uh, limit your power. He says, take, take the power, but then use that power for the sake of love. And as you do, you redeem that power, and it becomes a blessing to other people. In, uh, in Luke chapter 16, verse 11, it says, if you have not been trustworthy, in handling worldly wealth, who will you trust with true riches? Now, when I think about money, I don't think that's a lower thing. I think that's a harder thing. Uh, I think, you know, somebody has money, that's a lot of power. Well, the way that this verse says, money is like the least of powers. And if you can't even handle worldly riches, how are you, how are you going to handle spiritual authority? to cast out demons and to preach the gospel and to, to lead your neighbor. How are you going to do that? And so what if uh, the way that you and I handle our money is a window into our hearts? And it's a window in understanding how we see ourselves as being under authority and how we use authority. What if that's the way that we would look at power? Sorry, that's the way that we would look at money. I'm a man under authority. And so what I, I will be judged by God for what I do with my money. And the way that I'm blessed is if I use that money to be generous towards others. It's fascinating. Money, in a sense, is the training wheels of power. It's the, it's the easiest thing that you can practice having power with. 
So let me ask you, uh, in closing, upon what do you spend your time, treasures, and talents? What do you spend your time on? It's a great question, isn't it? Think about the amount of time that you have in a day. How much of that is spent on others? What do you and I owe others in how we spend our time? When we think of our treasure, how much of your money is spent purely for the benefit of others? It's a great question. And it's a question that we'll actually have to give account for someday of how we spent our time, how we spent our money, and then how do we spend our talents? The gifts that God's given us, whether it's the ability to write or to serve or you have a gift with numbers, evangelism, the ability to teach, to pastor and care. Um, what do you spend these things on? Is it to collect benefit for yourself or to be able to bless other people? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I've often contrasted uh, the love of God with the fear of God. And I'm not sure that's true. When I think about uh, my wife, Debbie, uh, I receive more love from her than anyone else. She's my wife. Yeah, except for, she says, except for Luna, our dog. She, uh, <laughs> no, you're more. <clears throat> and, uh, and because of her love for me, my love for her, she has great power over me. And as strange as it sounds, I'm afraid of her. I am afraid of hurting her. I'm afraid of being out of relationship with her. I'm afraid of being judged by her. Do you see how it's because I care so much about this relationship? So I watch Christians working really, really hard to have a love relationship with God. And they think that that journey means casting aside fear. I don't think it's true. That if you truly saw the magnificence of the love of God, you would be terrified to be out of his presence. Terrified. And I think this is exactly what hell is. Hell is the absence of the kindness and generosity of God. And to be outside of his love is to be in hell. And so I think it's appropriate for us to work out our salvation our salvation with fear and trembling. You have given me the gift of eternal life. I can't, I can't earn it. I can't manipulate it. I can never make myself be saved. It's a free gift that you've given me. But I can reject it. And the way that I can reject it is by, uh, by not living in your love and forgiveness myself. I can, I can squander it, belittle it, and say that it's irrelevant to me. And that's a form of not receiving. 
And so let me ask you this evening, do you fear the Lord? Not in some abstract way. Do you fear the Lord when you give, when you spend your money, when you spend your time, when you spend your treasures? Do you fear God in that? Or is it just, this is what I wanted to buy. This is what I like spending money on. It's a hobby. You're not going to deny me. No, of course not. You can spend money on your hobby. But if that's all you spend money on, that's a problem. And so what the early church was built on was a incredible experience of signs and wonders and miracles. And commensurate with that was a profound fear of the Lord and terror of coming under his judgment. So I don't know if, if you don't have to receive this prayer. But I would like to pray that the fear of the Lord would rest upon us. Because I don't think we'll be able to live in his love and righteousness unless we fear the Lord. And if we have some view of Jesus just being a super nice guy that just goes around and says, it's all good, I died for it all, and gives us all a fist pump, we, we thoroughly misunderstand who he is and how seriously he takes his sacrifice for us and his call for us to love him and to love our neighbor. So God, we come before you this afternoon, this, this evening, and we say that um, that we've, we've struggled with the idea of the fear of the Lord. And we've actually contrasted it with love so that a loving God wouldn't be a judge. And so we thank you that because you're loving, we want you to be a judge. And so we, uh, as Sam said so well earlier, we surrender ourselves to you. And we understand that we sit um, with a responsibility for the powers that you've given us. I think of even living in this country and having uh, the, the freedom of speech the ability to live beyond mere um, subsistence, but that we actually have disposable income. So much of the world does not have that power, but we do. And so, Father, I ask that you would give us, that you would purify our hands in how we spend our money, in how we spend our time, what we do with our abilities, whether it's just to get a better job or it's to advance your kingdom. So Spirit of God, rest on us. I pray that a loving fear would grip our hearts and that we would not take lightly the responsibilities that you've given each one of us to use what we have to honor you and advance your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.